0: I can't tell you how many hours I've put into lots of reading, lots of study over the last few weeks to prepare for this, and I still don't feel prepared for this, Um, so let's pray. Father, be with my mouth today, Lord. Um, Let the things that I speak be true. God, give us an understanding of your word. Let your people not be ignorant. Give us an understanding of your word, uh, the history of your people, how we've gotten here and how you'd have us live. We thank you for it, Lord in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So I want to continue today on our exegetical study. We are going to go into Romans. We're going to be in chapter 12. We're going to start in probably 18 and move forward. We are living in a time when many wicked rulers desire to be tyrants, and you knew that and I know that, and to rule in a heavy-handed, despotic fashion, to be the kings of the land and for you to be their peasant servants, their serfs, their feeble and powerless slaves. But the problem is the true authority of the land has already spoken. He's already ruled decisively against that. So let us be bold enough to say so and to resist that usurpation. Let us be men of courage. We have plenty of cowards. Let us be courageous enough to speak up against spurious false authority. Let us not hold our tongues when righteousness demands our speech. To quote a famous English poet, don't go gentle into that good night. The attempted tyranny and usurpation we've seen over the past couple years is not going to be turned back until the church stands firm against it, period. And if God's people won't rise up for the truth of God's word, the the world certainly won't either. You cannot comply your way out of tyranny. You'll never stop a bully by being a doormat. And it doesn't matter if we're talking about the hallways of a school building or the halls of Congress. There are now and there will be in the future despots, tyrants, bullies, men and women who are going to attempt to push their wickedness on you and on me by hook or by crook. By lie, by law, by any means they can. That's how sin and depravity works. And if you're unwilling to stand up against it, it will go on. It will go on until we will stand up and raise a standard against it. And the standard against it is God's word. There's a war going on between light and darkness and burying your head in the sand. Pretending it's not there will not make it go away. That's what cowards do. There's a reason that God's word in the book of Revelation says that cowards have their part in the lake of fire. You have not been called to cowardice. You've been called to holy boldness. Sitting around wringing your hands hoping the problem goes away will not make the problem go away. At some point, you'll have to have enough courage, and so will I, and so will the rest of God's people, to act. I'm not saying we should, therefore, grab arms and march on Washington. I am saying turning your blind eye will not make it go away, and pretending it's not there doesn't make it not not there. There's a war going on between light and darkness. And that war has you in the crosshairs whether you want to fight it or not. The enemy has set his sights on you for destruction. And we need to know how to resist that, how to fight against that in a biblical fashion. We need to know when it's proper to submit to governing authorities and when it's not. And believe it or not, there is a kind of defiance that's righteous There is a kind of civil disobedience that's proper, that's just, and that's even commanded by the real king over all the earth. His name is King Jesus. I'm going to have to pray again. I'm going to get too upset. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you to give us wisdom and truth through your word. Equip and strengthen us, Lord, your people for the days ahead. Make us fit to proclaim, defend, and live out your word even in the midst of despots or God-hating government authorities or leaders who are in open rebellion against you. Lord, I ask you would look down on them and judge them. Change their hearts or crush them under your feet, we pray. Let the rulers of this land know they must bow their heart before you if they are to rule with any legitimate authority. Forgive us, Lord, your people... For being so careless and so lazy as to be ignorant of our own history. Forgive us of being ignorant of your word. Forgive us at times for being too cowardly to speak out or to take a public stand. God, grant your ministers a new wave of holy boldness. Issue a holy boldness into the pulpits of this land. May your ministers proclaim your word uncompromised. And when the powers that be take their stand against you, may we stand firm against it come what may. May your ministers exhort your people to take their stand on your word, uncompromised, unflinching, unreserved, and unafraid. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. May your enemies be put under your feet. And may your glorious gospel continue to expand and conquer. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. You may tell. Feel like we're ready to box this morning. We began our perusal of scripture last time in Matthew twenty eight in the Great Commission. Let's do a little review real quick and then we'll get into Romans twelve and thirteen. Here's what the Great Commission says if we start at verse eighteen, Matthew twenty eight. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That I cannot emphasize that enough. All authority has been given to me, Jesus. In heaven and on earth. There is zero authority, true authority, on earth that stands against Jesus Christ. Any authority that stands against Jesus Christ, his word, his ways, is spurious. It is illegitimate. 19, on the basis of that, go therefore. Therefore means on that basis. Since I have all authority, since everything is now mine... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Go and teach people that everything belongs to me. It does not say just go and preach the gospel. Going and preaching the gospel is very important. Obviously, we should do that. But that is not the end-all, be-all of discipleship. He says go make disciples. That's an arduous task. And there is no part of life or faith Or all of reality that's outside the perusal or bounds of that. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here it is, 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. Is there an exception to that somewhere? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You go do this because I've been given all authority and I will be with you in that going. That's what Jesus says to his disciples. And we talked about how radical that statement was. All authority in heaven and earth, all of it? Yeah, all of it. That's why Jesus commands every man to repent. That statement, verse 18, should actually inform the way that we preach the gospel. We're not begging people to come fall at the feet of a weak Jesus Acts 17 says, Acts 17, through 31 says, Jesus commands everyone, everywhere to repent. In fact, let me just read that to you. In Acts 17, 30, Paul is addressing the men of Athens at the Areopagus, right? And part of his speech to them contains that real theological gem. He says this, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. He doesn't ask. He doesn't beg. He commands repentance. You can't command repentance if you're not the king. Does he just command repentance to Christians? No. He commands all men everywhere to repent. He doesn't ask. He doesn't beg. He is the conquering king Who is in true, legitimate state and charge of everything. It is his right to command repentance. He doesn't beg or grovel for it. He commands it. He doesn't have the authority to command repentance if he isn't the true king. But he is the true king. He can't legally command men to repent if he isn't their true authority, but he is their true authority and he's the true authority for believers and he's the true authority for the pagan and he's the true authority for the non-believer, He's the true authority for the Muslim. He's the true authority for every person on earth, period. Jesus' kingship literally affects the way and manner we present the gospel, which, by the way, in my mind, means it's more than just a secondary issue. I actually had something of a friendly debate over that very thing yesterday with a precious brother in the lord but we also looked at the interaction between satan and jesus last time we talked about how jesus with his life death and resurrection won all earthly authority he's twice the king okay let me illustrate that with a story a story that my pastor years ago told me and now i'm repeating it for you a story is told of a little boy that lived on the shores of lake michigan His father was a ship captain that would often buy him little toy boats for him to sail at the water's edge The little boy would pass the time waiting for his father to return from shipping runs By sailing his little toy boats around the lake and wonder what it was like To be on one of those big ships that dad was captaining One day dad came home with a beautiful replica model boat kit Just like the big ship that he worked on So father and son sat down together to build the boat After many hours of labor spread across many days, they finally had it all put together. Every last little piece was glued securely in place. It was watertight, and it was a masterpiece. It was instantly the boy's prized possession. After all, it wasn't just a beautiful model boat. It represented many hours of loving work at his father's side. One day, as the little boy was sailing his prized boat, a storm began to roll in, and it overtook Overtook the lake before he could get the boat back to shore shore the boisterous waves and wind had driven it out of his sight The boy was crushed fearing he'd never see it again He searched and searched until he was finally forced back into the house by the storm When he finally came inside he collapsed into the arms of his mother He cried and cried at the loss of his prized boat He was heartbroken and for days afterwards he couldn't even eat because of the heaviness of his heart one day, as he was walking to the store just down the street, he passed a pawn shop and noticed a very familiar-looking boat in the window. He rushed inside to see if it could possibly be his. Sure enough, he could make out his initials on the hole, right where his father had painted them before. Someone had found his boat and sold it. So he found the store owner. He told him the story of how the boat came to be lost, hoping the owner would give it back to him. But the shopkeeper told him, if you want it, if you want it back, you have to buy it. Well, it wasn't cheap, but he ran home as fast as his feet could carry him. And after emptying his piggy bank, checking under all the couch cushions and chairs and doing a couple odd jobs for mom, he had the money he needed. He ran back to the shop and bought back his boat. As he was walking out the door headed for home, a man noticed he was beaming from ear to ear. Son, looks like you're awfully proud of that boat. Did you just buy it? Actually, mister, I didn't just buy it. I built it in the first place. It's not just mine now. It's twice mine. I built it to begin with, and I bought it too. In a very real way, that's what Jesus was accomplishing at the cross. He was taking back all that the devil had put claim to. The world was his by virtue of him creating it, but it's also his by virtue of his death, burial, and resurrection. He created it to begin with, And he bought it with his sacrifice. Remember Luke 4? The devil took Jesus up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I'll give you and their glory, for it's been delivered to me. And I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you'll just worship me, all will be yours. So Satan was making a legitimate claim to earthly authority here. Through Adam's fall, Satan had... A legitimate claim to earthly authority. It was stolen, but it was still legitimate. You might say it was stolen fair and square. Not sure if that's really a thing, but I guess. But Jesus has now, through his death, burial, and resurrection, stripped Satan of that claim. He has delegitimized all the devil's claims of authority. Guess what else? He's delegitimized everyone else's claims of authority. All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus Christ. The only true authority on earth is that which he has instituted and passed down legitimately. And he has instituted and passed down authority in some areas to legitimate, if you will, authority holders. The husband and father is the legitimate authority of the family. The elders are the legitimate authority of the church. And there are government authorities who are legitimate authorities over governments, over people, over cultures. All authority, though, has been given to Jesus Christ. He is the head. He's the king. Let me ask you some rhetorical questions. Does he just reign in the church or does his reign extend to every other aspect of life and culture, too? Does he only reign over Christians? I'm so tired of hearing that nonsense. That's nonsense. He does not just reign over Christians. It's just that Christians will actually you know, accept, if you will, his rule. They'll confess his rule. He rules over everyone whether they like it or not. The orthodox biblical answer is that Jesus is the legitimate king over all things, period. He's the rightful ruler over all heaven and earth. He's told his disciples to pray that his rulership would be as thorough and as full on earth as it is in heaven. That's a radical prayer. He told his disciples to pray that his kingdom would come on earth in the same manner as it is in heaven. That is a radical prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a radical prayer. Think about how crazy it is. Let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. That's radical. In our mind, that's wild. How is it in heaven? How much rebellion to Jesus is tolerated in heaven? Jesus is saying, you pray that same thing happens here. Why? You just want to push the Bible on everybody. Yes, because that's how human flourishing happens. You will not have a just society where humans are truly free to flourish until you have a society that is built on the rule and law of Jesus Christ. Period. Period. In as much as a society will embrace the rule and law of Jesus Christ, in that much will it be set up for humans to flourish. And in those places where it decides, I will reject the biblical authority, I will reject Christ's authority, in those places you will not find flourishing, you'll find death. Friends, Jesus is the king, period, period. When we say he's king, we're not repeating some pithy religious mantra. We're proclaiming a fact. It's a fact as, as solid as gravity. It's as solid as any mathematical fact, grammatical fact, scientific fact. It is a fact. Jesus is king. I, I, I don't just want Jesus to be king. I don't want others just to accept that he's king. He is king whether they like it and accept it or not. Period. That's what we're proclaiming. That's part of the gospel we're proclaiming. Jesus is king. He has all authority. He has conquered. And did you notice what else Paul said to the Greeks at the Areopagus? Let me go back here. I've got it written down in here. It's interesting to me that this is, the, this is what he speaks to them. These past times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. The gospel that that Paul preached was Jesus is the king of everything, and he's commanding you to repent because there's a day he's going to judge you. We, When I ask most Christians in America to tell me the gospel, that is not what they're telling me. You know what they're telling me? Come to Jesus. He'll give you a better life. He'll make all your problems go away. Really? So you know what they do? Okay, I'll come to Jesus then. And as soon as there's persecution, as soon as something doesn't go their way, as soon as they don't get the big raise at the job, you know what they go? You know what they say? This didn't work for me. I tried it. They never heard the gospel to start with. You know what we need to do in america we need to preach the gospel in churches because most church people have never heard the gospel That's sad, but that's true I grew up in a church. I grew up in a church home And I didn't I never even heard the word gospel. I'm not kidding I did not know what the word gospel meant until I moved to oklahoma I was 19 years old before I ever heard the word gospel and I grew up in a church house Wow so Jesus explicitly commands us to go make disciples. Explicitly commands us to go make disciples. And he, and he commands us to teach those disciples to obey all of Jesus' commands. That leaves no area of life or reality untouched. In the words of the great Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper, there's not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence Over which Christ, who's sovereign over all, does not cry, it's mine. In other words, everything in your existence, Jesus looks at and says, that's mine now. Not just your existence, by the way. The unbeliever, too. So now that we've got that covered, let's get into where we're going this week. Book of Romans, 12.18, right? We're going to start at 12.18 basically to give us some context. Really, we're going to through 4 1 through 6 I personally think over the last few years this has become one of the most misused and abused portions of scriptures in all of the New Testament in an age of statism this passage becomes the byword of the tyrant and their apologists cowardly christians and preachers are quick to quote this in defense of any overreaching mandate by a dictatorial authority not realizing that it's often their dictatorial authority figure who's in violation of it to begin with, and I'll show you how. So with that said, let's turn there. Romans 12. Remember, there weren't uh, chapter divisions when this was written, right? Those didn't come later, until later. So I'm going to give a little bit of back, backdrop so that this is contextualized. Romans twelve eighteen. if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Man, there's a lot in that. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. By doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Here we go. Let every person, 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Okay, these are legitimate institutions. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Did you catch that? Is that true? Are all rulers not a terror to good conduct? Are there rulers out there who are terrors to good conduct? Are there rulers out there somewhere that will cut your head off for owning a Bible? Visit the Maldive Islands that are under Muslim control and see. Yes, there are. Well, then why does it say that? Why does it say rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad? Because it's giving us a principle. Paul is giving a principle to these Christians in Rome. And here's the principle. God has instituted government authorities. And when they are doing what God has instituted, what he's put them there to do, they are not a terror to good conduct. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's right and you'll receive his approval. Or some say his praise. Is that always true? If I stand up and say God's word commands that marriage is between one man and one woman for life, will I incur the approval of Washington? No. I'm a hater. I'm an extreme you're an extremist. I had a friend that sent me a meme. I shouldn't even mention memes in the pulpit, probably, but I had a friend that sent me a meme, and it was like. Those right-wing extremists, they're the ones that want to raise their children in peace and own their own home and have their children get a good education free of indoctrination. You know, extremists. It's like, yeah, it's true. Verse 4. The authority is God's servant. Let me back up a little bit. Verse 3, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what's right. You'll receive his approval or his praise. For, in other words, here's why you're going to receive that praise. He is God's servant for your good. Is that right? Well, he's supposed to be. He's God's servant for your good. In fact, the word that's used there, the Greek word that's used there is diakonos. He's a deacon. He is the servant of God's church, and he's there for your good. But if you do wrong, you should be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is, same word again, the servant, the deacon of God. An avenger to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Okay, so what is his job? It says right there. His qualifications for office are right there, and no one wants to talk about it. What is his job? He's God's servant. He's the servant of God. His job, his qualification for office, is that he is to avenge and carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And the first time that he decides to carry out God's wrath on the rightdoer, he has abdicated his authority. He is not doing the will of God's servant. He is now rogue. And a rogue agent is no agent. He is, his authority to do so is illegitimate. It's why Augustine said an unjust law is no law at all. Because only a rogue agency can make an unjust law. And if you enforce an unjust law, you don't have the authority of heaven behind you. Please don't try to lie to me and tell me that he is the servant of God, an avenger. By the way, if you have the new King James, or the King James version, I, I love that version. It says he's a revenger. His job is to take revenge on those who break God's law. He's an avenger. ...who is to carry out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, you must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are, here it is again, the ministers of God attending to this very thing. His job is to be a deacon, a servant of the church. It is to protect God's people, literally, That's his job. That's what God has instituted it for. God has instituted authorities in different spheres of life, and one of them is the political sphere, the sphere of government. God has instituted legitimate authority in government. (coughs) This is the very word of God. May we hear it, understand it, and be quick to obey it. Here's the problem. This is the place that some Christians are quick to point to when they want you to simply submit to ungodly orders from tyrannical leaders. When the state attempts to overreach, but those Christians want to avoid the hassle and the headache of noncompliance, they will simply and lazily and cowardly point to Romans 13 and tell you, hey, you need to submit, but it's an ungodly order. You need to submit anyway, but it's ungodly. It's against God's law. You need to submit anyway. Romans 13 says to submit. That's not what Romans 13 is saying. I've actually been in a service where this was what was preached. You know, Paul wrote this while Rome was being cru- uh, uh, ruled and, and Christians were being crucified by Nero. Nero. That same Nero that persecuted Christians mercilessly, and yet Paul tells us here to obey Nero, even Nero, because he's God's minister and he's doing God's work. I have literally heard that preached. That's hogwash. That is not what Romans 13 says. And I won't stand here and pretend it does. I made my blood boil to hear that, by the way. Whether he meant to or not, that preacher's ignorance of church history was lending itself to his misunderstanding and misuse of that passage. So let's get that right out of the way up front. This passage is not teaching an unqualified allegiance and obedience to the state, much to the chagrin of the political apologists of our days. And by the way, it wasn't written while Christians were being put to death in Rome. Listen to what church history professor Josh Steele had to say about this. Quote, Knowledge of the situation facing Roman Christians in A.D. 55 to 57, when Paul's letter to the Romans was penned, is crucial to proper interpretation of this text. Emperor Claudius had expulsed the Jews, he'd thrown them out, from the city of Rome in A.D. 49. That, in effect, removed Jewish believers from the Roman church and therefore left behind only Gentile Christians in their stead. However, Claudius was killed by his wife Agrippina in A.D. 54, and her son Nero then advanced to the throne that same year, immediately allowing the Jews to return to the city. Now we have Jewish and Gentile Christians together again in Rome. When Romans was written by Paul around A.D. 57, the empire was actually enjoying a period of peace that looked quite different from the chaos that would come to characterize the later years of Nero's reign. Did you catch that? me, he said again, guided by his advisor Seneca, Nero had actually made promises of a different and even better peace than the Pax Romana of Augustus. Christians were high on hope for good reason. It looked like Nero was going to be a very good ruler. He had a fantastic advisor named Seneca. And at this point, he was basically taking his advice. But something would happen a few years later. Nero, guided by Seneca, had promised true peace and restraint of the government to the point that he was against using force in order to govern. That is to say, he was against using military force in order to govern, which at the time was going on. That was the hope that Roman Christians were living with at the time the book of Romans was penned. Steele goes on to say, while these promises were dashed beginning in A.D. 59 with Nero's murder of his own mother, the loss of his advisors, and the beginning of his persecution of Christians, it's crucial to remember that Paul had already written the book of Romans before that. Therefore, Romans 13:1 through 7 should not be interpreted as if it were written to Roman believers in the later years of Nero's reign, when his persecution and oppression were rampant. For this would unduly strengthen the Paul's pro-empire sentiment here. It is therefore a mistake to read Romans 13one 7 as some sort of justification for the sins of the state. As if this passage somehow gave carte blanche authority to the atrocities that would be committed by the empire or the later years of Nero's reign. End quote. I think some of us need to grasp that. There are some in our day that want to make this passage exactly say that. They want this to say that Christians should dutifully obey even the most heinous political figure because, after all, if they have political power, it's only by God's providence. They're, therefore, God's ministers. That's so strange to me. Somehow, in the Reformed world, we can look at a pastor that's perverse and go, well, he may be in the pulpit, but he's not God's minister. He's not qualified to be a pastor. He's not a real pastor. And yet we'll look right over at the political figure that is heinous, God-hating, and go, well, you know, he's God's minister. No, he's not. There is no such thing as God's minister in the Scripture that is without qualification. There is no human authority that is absolute. None. As soon as that human authority decides to take their stand against Christ, against God, they have abdicated their authority. And it doesn't matter whether we're talking about a husband or whether we're talking about an elder in the church or whether we're talking about a political figure in the realm of government. I said this last time. I said if a husband tells his wife, hey, I'm going to pimp you out for money. She is not. Oh, I just got to follow that order. He's God's minister. No, he's giving you an unlawful order. You do not have to follow that order and you're not disobeying God to not follow it. Actually, you would be obeying God not to follow that order. Now we have a kind of righteous disobedience. The same thing happens in any context. There are people who truly believe that some kind of, you know, political figure, just by virtue of them being a political figure, they are somehow to be obeyed without question because they're God's menace. That's crazy. I was in a Bible study years ago where the illustration was brought up of Christians living in Nazi Germany. I wish I was kidding. Methodist Bible study, so, you know, maybe that had something to do with it. But I was a good Methodist boy. That's how I grew up. The argument, though, was put forward that Christians living in Nazi Germany should have obeyed their supreme chancellor. That would be Hitler. Because, well, God put him in power. And Romans 13 says he's God's minister for those people. Is that true? You believe that? But that's the argument I wish I were kidding that kind of stuff boils my blood this passage there's no way you can exegete this passage properly and get get that out of the text Isn't that what 13 1 and 4 says though isn't that what it means well in a word no There are some biblical principles that should be mined out of this passage and and obeying the authorities is one of them Principle number one Christians are not to be scofflaws It's true Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Those institutions are good. We are not to be anarchists. We are to recognize that God has instituted government as an extension of his arm of rulership. And they are there for the good of his people and the good of his creation. We should be a people who are characterized by our willingness to obey the rule of law. We shouldn't be the ones who are over and over getting in trouble at work for violating company policy. Or at least when it's righteous company policy. If the policy is fundamentally unrighteous, then it's a different matter. right? If, if my boss tells me I'm going, I need to lie to whomever, that, and that might be a different thing. I have worked for bosses who have done that before. And it made it really uncomfortable to have that conversation thinking, I'm about to get fired. Listen, I I can't do that. If the policy clearly runs afoul of biblical ethics, it's a different matter. But we shouldn't be scofflaws. We shouldn't be animated by a spirit of fleshly rebellion, obviously. And that's exactly what we're learning here. Government here's another one that we get out of this government is not a necessary evil In fact, it shouldn't be evil at all Government is a positive good It should be a reflection and extension of christ's rulership in that sphere It was instituted with that in mind It was instituted for the express purpose of human flourishing and so christians should not be anarchists Romans 13, one and 2 clearly tells us the government has been appointed by God. So the government in and of itself isn't an evil thing. It's been instituted by God. It's a good thing. It was established by God for our good. But it can be evil when evil people misuse it for something God did not intend just as God established the headship of the husband for the good of the family, just as God established the headship of the elders for the good of the church, He established government for the good of humanity. It's only evil when evil people misuse it for something God did not intend. And by the way, that can that can be extrapolated out to almost any area of life. You, you can say the same thing about sexuality. It's not evil. It's evil when it's used for something it's not supposed to be used for. And the same thing with government and governmental authority. Unfortunately, this is where we find ourselves today. We often find the government being used for evil things by evil people. Abusing it for something God did not intend. And that's where the conflict lies. That's where the rubber meets the road. It's the second principle garnered from this little text of Scripture. And it seems to be the one that so many of us just ignore. And that's this. God has instituted governments and governing authorities as his deacons, his servants, his ministers. And as such, they have qualifications to meet. 13.4. He is God's servant for your good. What, What if he's not for our good? What if he's actively trying to destroy the church? then don't, don't think for a second he's God's minister. God's minister does not destroy his church. It's crazy that I actually have to say that out loud. No. If he's doing that, he is not God's servant. He's not working on behalf of God. He's attempting to work against him. He is in rebellion to God. He's not the servant of God. He's not the deacon of God the governing authority has been established by God as his deacon his servant And his proper job is punishing the wrongdoer carrying out God's wrath being an avenger He is serving and protecting God's bride. That's his job He's serving and protecting God's special people and there's godly reward to be had in that when it's done rightly But what about when that government authority is actually punishing those that are obedient to God? What about when he's rewarding evil instead of rewarding good? Well, then he isn't functioning in the manner that God instituted for his office. And the people he reigns over are under no godly or biblical compulsion to obey him. Listen, I am not talking about just Christians. Here's something else that you should know from Jesus' kingship. If there is an example of a law that Christians should not obey, that means that is a law that no one should obey. It is fundamentally an unjust law law. Jesus is not just the king over the Christians. He's the king over all. Listen to how pastor and professor David Schrock puts it. When we read Romans 13, we need to see what it says and what it doesn't say. Namely, the faithful Christian is to obey the command to submit to those in authority, seeing them as God's servant. But at the same time, When governors misuse their God-given authority and they violate God's law, faithful Christians must obey God instead of this wicked man. As Francis Schaeffer once put it, tyranny is satanic. Not to resist it is to resist God. To resist tyranny is literally to honor God. This truth of resisting tyrants stands on the bedrock of Christian political resistance. It's been argued many times in church history. And yet today, we see it sorely lacking. When the modern Christian exhorts us to do whatever the governor says, and they do this in the name of obeying Romans 13, the irony is that they are the ones in violation of that same passage of Scripture. The duty of the people in a constitutional republic is to resist unlawful encroachments of those who hold office. That is a duty of every citizen in America Republic. To say the people do not have the right to do this is to kick against the established constitutional authority and the established law of the land. In America, the greatest authority is not a man nor an elected official. It is a document, namely the Constitution. I'd put an asterisk there. It's the second highest authority. Therefore, when the people or their governing officials stand outside of their constitutional authority, they, not those of us who are calling them to task, they are in violation of Romans 13. When governors and mayors order everyone to take this shot, they have simply assumed the power of an American governor is identical to that of an ancient king. And that's not true. If someone who's in charge in the government gives you an order that looks like a lawful order, then doesn't Romans 13 require us to obey it and don't talk back? No. Not only is the answer to that no, it's a thoroughly biblical no. It's an obedient no, not a disobedient no. Schrock goes on to tell us, sadly, this perspective is a minority report today. What has replaced the bold biblical arguments of Rutherford, Francis Schaeffer, and others? Well, the swarmy evangelical puff pieces that tell us all to just go along and get along. Just be a nice guy. Don't make waves. That's the stance of cowardice. I'm glad Jesus didn't do that. Glad John the Baptist didn't do that. America, and American Christians in particular... Short goes on to say this America and American Christians in particular have been living off the borrowed capital of religious liberty for centuries without realizing it Christian churches when they were gathered repeatedly gave thanks for the freedom to worship but they did so cheaply instead of investing in a biblical theology of God and government or how God's law and man's laws intertwine too many churches have for generations not taught their members anything in the matters of religious liberty. They just assumed that religious liberty was their birthright that would last forever. He goes on to finish with this. He says, let me be clear. The church doesn't need the First Amendment to prosper. I agree. Christ will build his church with or without religious liberty. It's true. But that does not mean then we should not care about religious liberty. If a peaceful and quiet life is what we are told to pray for, according to Romans 12 and 1 Timothy 2, and if God has granted to the American church the gift of religious liberty so that she can can better do her job of spreading the gospel, then as a matter of stewardship and obedience to God, we need to teach afresh what Romans 13 does and does not mean. And we should pray and work toward preserving that liberty while it's still on the books. Why? For the cause of the gospel. So who's the highest civil magistrate in this land? See, this is the problem. We think of governors and presidents and congressmen as if they are kings, and they are not. And our laws of the land says they are not. It says, they rule at the consent of the governed. They don't rule any subjects. You're citizens. The battle cry of the Revolutionary War was no king but Christ. And in our nation, the highest civil authority under Christ is the Constitution. Constitution. And when the governing officials and civil magistrates stand outside of that authority, they are in violation of Romans 13. They are the ones violating their sworn oath to uphold the law of the land. And they are the ones that should be called out for their wickedness, not the Christian who defies their wicked order. I'm not in violation of Romans 13 for calling out a public official who violates their constitutional oath and is also violating God's authority. When a governing authority tells me I must inject an experimental serum into my body or face the music, he's giving me an unlawful and unconstitutional order. He has no constitutional authority to tell me that. He has no divine authority to tell me that. He has no authority whatsoever to dictate to me what I must or must not put into my own body. He can give me advice, he can give me suggestions, but the minute he attempts to mandate it on me, he's run aground the divine authority of his office. He's out of line, his authority is abdicated and spurious. There are two legitimate authorities when it comes to mandates toward my body, and I probably have violated them more than I should. The two legitimate authorities are Jesus Christ and my spouse. Jesus Christ really is the owner of my body and yours. Scripture says we've been bought by him with a price and your body is not your own. It's Christ's. Therefore, I should glorify Christ with my body. My spouse also has a legitimate claim on my body. 1 Corinthians 7.4 says that our spouses have legitimate authority over our bodies as well. But nowhere in scripture will you find the idea that a state official can mandate what must go into my body. Nowhere. So if you feel hesitant at all about putting something into your body, just know you're fully within your biblical right to be so. No government or corporate representative has any right to force anything into you that you don't approve of or consent to. Now if you've decided you want to get it, fine. If you think it's a good health decision for you and your family, by all means, go ahead. I'm not saying it's wrong. Obviously, it's not. I am saying that just because some official says you have to do it does not mean that, in fact, you do. You are not disobeying God by resisting. In fact, forcing something into another's body against their will used to be called rape. And it doesn't matter what's being forced. Knife? Needle? Or something else. It's unethical. It's immoral. And to pretend that it's just fine so long as it's got the backing of some government official is wicked. I won't pretend it's something it's not. It's wicked. In closing, let me say this. Romans 13 is a very important part of scripture. It has principles that we are to obey. It teaches us that government is a good thing. When government is done right. But it does not give carte blanche authority to wicked governing officials. It does not teach unqualified obedience to wicked officials or their mandates, and it's high time that we stop pretending it does. Let's pray. Dear God, let your word strengthen and equip your people today. Don't let us be hoodwinked, let us be courageous. Let us be courageous enough to follow our convictions. The convictions that tell us you are king over all. And you are, be, are to be obeyed always. Father, let us be people that obey you, that follow your word, that live lives that glorify you. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name.